When you feel threatened, where do you turn for safety? Where do you, where do you turn for security? I, that must be on the minds of those Christians leaving that church this morning in Pakistan. You know, there were armed guards out in front of that church, and yet guards did not provide the safety those Christians needed this morning. Back when the primary threat to our safety was external, was, was physical, that, that is where we tended to turn. We turned for safety to, to the fortress, to the citadel. I think of the scene in, in the two towers when King Theoden, and just pardon me if you don't know anything about the Lord of the Rings, but I'm assuming a lot of you do or you saw the movie. King Theoden realizes that his peacetime capital is exposed, it is indefensible, and so he makes the decision in the face of Saruman's approaching armies to, to, to flee, to flee to the safety of Helm's Deep. It's a great name. It sounds like a fortress, and that's exactly what it was. We still have citadels, fortresses like that. Most of them are museums now. But in some places of the world, they're still real. Right. I I have friends in in South Africa who in their homes have safe rooms, areas of their home that can literally in a moment's notice turn into a fortress to protect themselves from home invasion. Uh, The president of the United States has his own fortress. It's it's not the White House. It flies. It's called Air Force One. It is a flying fortress. These days, of course, for most of us here in the West, most of the time, the threats don't come in the form of invasion or or threat to our physical security. The threats are different. The threats are social. The threats are financial. The threats are relational or even psychological. Therefore, we still need citadels. We still need fortresses, places of, of safety, but but now instead of building them out of brick and mortar, we build them out of other things, don't we? We build them with bank account numbers. We, we build them with social media networks. Our, our, our citadel might be our vacation rental home. It might even eventually be our own personal pain-numbing drug of choice. Sometimes those drugs are actually manufactured by pharmaceutical companies, but most of the time, the, the drug of choice, that, that, that citadel that we turn to for safety is made up of pixels and images on a screen. It's made up of a, of a full shopping cart. It's made up of just sheer busyness. But what if your biggest threat this morning isn't financial insolvency or relational heartache or sexual dissatisfaction, what if your biggest threat this morning is God? What citadel is strong enough to protect you from him? This fall, we're looking at the book of 2 Samuel. It's the story of the rise and the fall and then the return of David. Israel's greatest king. And in our text this morning, we see King David doing what every good king does. He establishes a citadel, a a fortress of safety for himself and his people. And as we consider his story this morning, I want you to consider your own. Where do you turn for safety? Where is your 
citadel and on the day it really matters. Will it be enough? Will it be enough to protect you? Will it be enough to keep you safe? So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you're using a Bible that we've provided in the pews and chairs around you, that's found on page 477. 477. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to look at chapters 5 and 6 this morning. By the end, I will have read all of both chapters. They fall into two clear sections. So if you're taking notes, they're just two points. Chapter 5. We see a city for the king, a city for the king. And then in chapter six, a king for the city, a king for the city. Chapter five, verse one, page 477. Listen, listen, as I read this first chapter to you. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years in Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months and in Jerusalem He reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, The blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. 
Chapter 5 is a good read. It's a good story. But I need, I need to tell you, and you may have suspected this even as I read it, it's not chronological. It's not chronological. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, follows fairly quickly after Israel publicly acknowledges David as king in verse 3. Now, politically, this makes sense. Philistia, as a nation, was not threatened by David as king of that small, insignificant, uninteresting nation of Judah in the south. But a unified Israel, now that's another matter. And so quite quickly, they moved to try to to break up the union of the south and the north. But, But the real point of this chapter is not political, it's theological. And that's why the author sets it up like a sandwich. The two pieces of bread in this sandwich are the actions of the people in verses 1 to 5 and the actions of God in verses 17 to 25 to publicly acknowledge and confirm that David is the true king. David is the one who will deliver God's people from their enemies. That's that's what the people say in verse 3. You were the one, even when Saul was king, you were the ones who led Israel on their military campaigns. And it's what God proves in these two battles with the Philistines. So, so you, you see right there in, in verse 19, the Lord, the Lord says to him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So both the people and God are acknowledging David's the one. David's the king. He's the one who's going to deliver God's people from their enemies. But the meat of the sandwich is verses 6 to 16. And that's why the, the, the author tells this story kind of non-chronologically. He moves the event of David's conquering of Jerusalem into the center of this summary of David's early reign so we understand what the main point is, what's, what's really going on. Not only does David conquer the last remaining unconquered Canaanite city, But we're told in this section of the building of his palace, the the birth of many more sons there, that the establishment of of good foreign relationships in which which this this foreign king kind of basically sues for peace and wants to be friends with David by by sending these workmen and all these cedar logs. And and we get really this, this summary statement of what's going on in this middle section there in verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And it's all tied to David conquering and being established at Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was not merely a a citadel and a a capital for this new king. Jerusalem and, and David's residence there was the fulfillment of promises that God had made, stretching all the way back through Joshua, through Moses, all the way back, to Abraham. When you read through chapter 5, if you're familiar with your Bible, you should be reminded of the book of Joshua. It, it sounds like conquest narrative, and it's meant to. It's meant to make us think of that, of that older book of Joshua. At long last, a king has come who's going to, who's going to finish Joshua's work, because Joshua dies and, and the, the work is undone. David's described there in verse 2, this, this uh, shepherd, my people Israel, you, you will become their ruler. He's, he's described there in verse 2, really using the language of Moses' prayer for Joshua from Numbers chapter 27. 
verse 16. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And then as the chapter goes on again and again, we're, we're reminded of Joshua in, in verse 24 with the, with the sound of this angelic army marching in the treetops. We're, we're reminded of Joshua, who himself received aid from this unseen angelic army of the Lord. D- David's battles against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines weren't somebody that, that Joshua really faced. But where does he fight the Philistines? He fights them twice in the valley of Rephaim. Who are the Rephaim? The Rephaim are the name of the old inhabitants of Canaan, the, the, the race of giants, the ones Israel was afraid of, the, the ones that they, they would not go into the promised land to conquer. And now David conquers them. Most importantly, David does what Joshua and the men of Judah were unable to do. He finally defeats the Jebusites. And he takes the city of Jerusalem, the last major city, yet unconquered. Why is Jerusalem so important? What's the big deal here? Well, politically, it gave David a neutral capital, like Washington, D.C., which belongs to no state. Jerusalem had belonged to no tribe. So politically, it works. Strategically, it makes great sense. It's way up in the highlands. It, it, the, the city is set on, on this ridge, easily defensible, overlooking two major valleys with, with major uh, trade routes running through them. We hear that sense of, of defensibility even in the way that the Jebusites respond to David. David's never going to get in here. But the real significance of Jerusalem is not political. It, it's not strategic and economic. It's theological. Since the time of Abraham, Jerusalem had been recognized as God's place. God's place. Right nearby stood Mount Moriah, where God had told Abraham to go to sacrifice Isaac, the son of the promise. And then there at that place, God provided a substitute for the promised son. To, to Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, Abraham, the father of the faithful, paid a tithe, a tithe of his spoils of war. And he paid it to him because he understood that, that Melchizedek wasn't just the king of Jerusalem. Melchizedek was the priest of Yahweh. We move on from Genesis. We, we, we skip over to the book of Judges. As the book of Judges opens, the men of Judah conquered this one king. His name is Adani Bezek. And And it's time to execute this king. And where do they execute him? They don't execute him where they capture him. They travel all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, a city they do not control, and they execute him there. Later in 1 Samuel, the young David cuts off Goliath's head. And where does he take the head? He takes it as a trophy to Jerusalem. But the Israelites don't control Jerusalem. The the, the royal city at that time, Saul's royal city, was the city of Gibeah. That's where you should take the head as a trophy. David doesn't take it there. He takes it to a city they don't even control. 
and stakes it out as a trophy to the true king. You see, Jerusalem was the city of the great king Yahweh. That was well known, even though Israel didn't control it. And at least in Abraham's day, the king of that city was Yahweh's priest. And now, finally, here here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the faithful king that was prophesied back in Deuteronomy 17 has come. And to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, God establishes his king in his city, the fortress that that would be known as the, the city of David. Zion, the city of God. And, and there, David would preside as, as king over God's people, Israel. All, you, see, you see what's going on here. All sorts of storylines in the Old Testament are, are, are coming together right here in Second in Samuel 5. What, what do we learn from this? What do we, what do we take away from, from what's going on just historically in this chapter? Well, I think at the very least, let me start, that that we learn two important things about faith. What does it mean for us to trust God? God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Now, it had been, what, 300 plus years since God promised Moses that he would give Israel the land? It had been nearly a, a thousand years since he'd made the same promise to Abraham? That's a long time to wait. But the scriptures want to make clear God keeps his promises. All of them. But he keeps them on his timetable, not ours. He keeps them in his way, not ours. So faith, if it's, if it's real faith in God, must be a faith that is patient. That is willing to wait for God. That that does not try to keep God's promises for him. That does not demand that God answer his promises the way we want them answered. But is willing to wait and wait and trust. The people of God have been waiting a long time for these specific promises to to be fulfilled. A thousand years. But God kept his promise. Now this is something we thought about a lot two weeks ago about the way in which faith waits upon the Lord. It trusts in God. It doesn't seek to keep God's promises for him. But we do see a second thing about faith, I think, in this chapter. And that is that while while faith is patient, while it waits, faith is also active. It is not passive. Waiting does not mean passivity. No, throughout this chapter, David is Actively trusting in God, actively obeying God. Faith doesn't sit around while it's waiting and just twiddle its thumbs. Faith obeys. Faith acts. Now, David demonstrates this two different ways in this chapter, at least. Actually, probably more. But but two that I'll just point out. On the one hand, he asks the Lord, should I go up and attack the Philistines? He inquires of the Lord. And then when the Lord says yes, well, he goes and does it without delay. He obeys. Then they come back a second time. He inquires again. Should I go up and attack them again? You know, this time God says, yes, but I I want it done differently. And and so what does David do? 
to say, no, God, I liked, I liked the, pl- the, the plan the first time. I liked, I liked that first plan. That, you know, it worked the first time. I'd like to go back and do it that way again. No. No, he says, all right, it's a longer march. It's more inconvenient. It's kind of going to be a pain for me and my men. But, but I'll do it your way. He, he, he obeys. On the other hand, did you notice in, in the narrative of taking Jerusalem, David doesn't ask God about Jerusalem at all. He just, you know, soon after, apparently, soon after these battles with the Philistines, he gathers his men and he marches on Jerusalem. And he just decides, I'm taking it. I'm taking it. And he, and he, and he thinks through how to take it. it. It is an incredibly hard city to take, built up on, on, a, on a ridge that way. With, with, it would have had large walls. It would have been very easy to defend, very difficult to attack. So he has to think it through. How am I going to take it? He realizes the city's water source is outside the walls. They have built a protected water tunnel or shaft so that when they're being besieged, they can still get water. We got to get, we got to get in that shaft. We're going to have to sneak in and, and take it from, from the inside. And you can go to Jerusalem today and, and, and they can point this shaft out to you, or at least one that would have been like it. So, he's, you know, he's, he's actively thinking it through. But, but he's not actually asking God, you know, should I do it, God? Should, should I go take Jerusalem? Now, now, why doesn't he ask about Jerusalem when he did ask about the Philistines? Is he inconsistent in his prayer life? No, not at all. Unlike the Philistines, Jerusalem was already under the ban of holy war. God had given instructions about Jerusalem hundreds of years ago. It's just nobody had gotten around to doing it yet. To rush ahead and attack the Philistines who were not under the permanent injunction of God, like the, like the, the seven nations of the Canaanites, to rush ahead and attack the Philistines without inquiring of the Lord, would have been presumptuous. But to fail to attack Jerusalem, actually, to even bother asking God about whether or not he he should attack Jerusalem, that would have been faithless. Because God had already spoken. God hadn't spoken about the Philistines, but he had already spoken about Jerusalem. So, So, faith. While it waits for God to keep its promises, is active. It, it, it seeks after the Lord's will. But I think more importantly, where it already knows the Lord's will, it stops seeking and it obeys. So if you're here this morning and, and you're a Christian, there is no doubt in my mind that there are many places in your life where you are seeking the Lord's will. You're not sure what to do. You know, should I, should I marry this girl or that girl? Should I take this job or that job? Should I move to this city or that city? Should I go to this college or that college? Which set of in-laws should I spend Christmas with? You know, you know I mean, there's just tons of questions that you're, that you're always asking yourself. Well, 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 it's good to put this before the Lord. It's good to pray for wisdom. It's, it's good to ask for his guidance. But, but Christian, are you obeying all the things that he's already said in the meantime? You know, so so while you're trying to figure out if you if you should marry this girl that you've been dating for 
umpteen years. You actually don't need to ask yourself, should I sleep with her or not? You see, because God's already spoken on that. It's just not a question. Yeah, it's a question, should you marry her? It's not a question. You should sleep with her. As you're trying to figure out uh, how to handle a, a difficult project at work, you don't need to ask yourself, should I be seeking to share my faith with my colleagues at work that I'm, I'm working on this project with? Yeah, you need wisdom for that project, but you just need to obey when it comes to sharing your faith because God's already spoken. When you're trying to figure out which set of in-laws you're going to spend Christmas with, yeah, you might, you might need wisdom there. But what you don't need any guidance on is, nevertheless, I, I need to love my in-laws, whether I spend Christmas with them or not. You see how this works. Most of what we need to know in order to live a life of faith, we already know. We already know. God has spoken in his word. The question is, are we willing to obey it? Or do we find that again and again we're moving things that he's already spoken clearly on over into this category? Well, I'm not sure. I think I need some guidance. Friends, that's unbelief. That's faithlessness. While we wait on God to keep his promises, we want to actively obey what he's already told us. Now, by the end of chapter 5, David is ensconced in his fortress. His palace is built. His enemies are pushed back to their original borders the line of succession is secure. I mean, we don't know which one it's going to be, but my goodness, he's got enough sons to choose from. His, 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 his neighboring nations are trying to make peace with him. I mean, so, so is David safe? Is David secure? Verse 10 tells us that he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. I wonder if that's how some of you feel this morning. Safe in the knowledge, the certainty that the Lord is with you. All you have to do is look around at your circumstances to know. You know, the kids are doing okay. The bank account's full. The threats to your security seem distant, or if they're not that distant, at least manageable. It's kind of the picture we get at the end of chapter 5. And maybe that's how you feel as you look around at your life. I must be safe. I, mu I must be okay. God must be with me because all the external signs are there. But in fact, David has yet to face his greatest threat. And neither have we. Because this isn't just the story of a city for the king. It is also, second, the story of a king for the city. Look in chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. 
They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahiah, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahiah was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. All right, we'll just stop there for a moment. We, we, we don't know how much time has elapsed from the conquering of Jerusalem to David's decision to bring the ark of God to the city. What we do need to recognize is that this event that's being described for us here in, in, in chapter 6 is not fundamentally a religious event. It is fundamentally the royal procession of the great king into his city. We're told right there in, in uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 2, that, that the Ark of the Covenant was not merely this religious object. No, it represented the throne of Yahweh himself. The king, the king, is coming into his city. Only the people don't quite yet understand that. They don't really understand what kind of king this is. They think they're having a religious ceremony. Putting the throne on a new cart made perfect sense. It was a way to honor this God. You know, nobody else had ever used the cart. It was, it was an, actually an expense offered uh, to, to this God. But it was fundamentally pagan. And we might say merely religious. This is how the Philistines transported their gods around. It's, it's how actually the Philistines, when, when they found themselves in, in the possession of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, you remember back uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, they've got the Ark of the Covenant, whoo, and everybody starts dying, and so they want to send it back to Israel. What do they do? They put it on a new cart, because this is what you do with a god. You put him on a cart, and you send him on his way. There are other problems here as well. The musical instruments are wrong. Where are the Levites? There's no mention of them. It comes to a head when the oxen stumble and it appears that the ark is about to tumble onto the ground. And at that moment, with the very best of pious intentions, Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And what happens? Does God say thank you? No, God breaks out against him. Same word as what he did to the Philistines. He broke out against the Philistines. Now he breaks out against Uzzah and he strikes him dead right there. What kind of God would do that? Isn't God supposed to be there for us? You know, to help us? 
to help us get through life when, when things are going tough? What kind of God makes life harder? And don't you think that made life harder for a bunch of people right there? What, what kind of God ruins the party that we're throwing for him? What kind of God takes offense at our pious good intentions? This kind of God. Friends, God is no local deity. He, he, he's no domesticated God who's, who's flattered that we're celebrating him and, and actually needs a little bit of help so that his throne doesn't get dirty. He's a holy God. You understand Uzzah's mistake here. Uzzah's mistake was to assume that his hand was preferable, was more honorable to God than the dirt was. But the fact is, the dirt had never disobeyed God. Not once in all of its existence. Ever since God had made that dirt, that dirt had been faithfully doing what the dirt was supposed to do which was to be dirt. Uzzah couldn't say that for himself. And neither can we. To come into the presence of a holy God with our sin, you know, with, with, with all of our decisions to not do and be what we were created to do and be, to come into God with all of that, to come into his presence with all of that, is to experience God's judgment. David and all of Israel were reminded of that that day. Friends, if we're going to understand God, we must understand this. He is not a religious object that we manipulate. He is our king. He has absolute authority over us, and he is holy. And we are not. We kind of just waltz into his presence. We cannot assume that God is glad to see us like an old relative forgotten in a nursing home, a nursing home who's just tickled pink that we finally remembered to come visit. That's not God. Now, to be holy as God is holy is to be set apart. It is to be sacred and therefore to be approached with awe and reverence and respect and never with presumption. You know, I think there are moments in life when we human beings get a sense of the holy, of something that is truly sacred. Your wedding night. The, the birth of a child. The, the funeral of anyone, but I, I think especially of, of some of the funerals I've been at, of men and women who have laid down their lives in service to their country. Sacred moments filled with awe. Not to be taken lightly. Not to be taken presumptuously. But you know, there's even more going on here than awe. Just, just as the, the sacredness of marriage should not be violated. 
just as that funeral of the fallen soldier should should not be violated. So God's holiness cannot be violated. And friends, that's what our sin does. Worse than anything that Westboro Baptist Church has ever done at a soldier's funeral is our sin thrusting itself into the presence of God, offending, violating. And it cannot be tolerated. And so God breaks out against Uzzah. God doesn't snap the way you and I sometimes snap in anger. He's not flying out in an irrational rage. No, he's upholding and he's defending the sacred, the holy, himself, his holiness. And he does it by executing judgment. Friends, death is what Uzzah got and death is what we deserve for our sin in the presence of his holiness. To, to be cut off from his light and his life Forever, not just because of what, we, what we've done, but because of who we are. Unholy people in the presence of a holy God. This is why David's angry. He's not so much angry at God as he's angry at what all this means. It turns out that that God doesn't just break out against David's enemies. God breaks out against David's friends as well. Because God breaks out against sin. And so David is afraid. Some of us are sitting here this morning afraid. And that's the right response, friends, to the holiness of God. Because the question facing David is, is the question facing all of us. After we've built all of our fortresses of safety, after we've built all of our citadels protecting us from everything that we can imagine that we need to be protected from, where can we turn for safety when our greatest threat is God? We spend so much time trying to secure our own safety. We go to the right schools, we live in the right neighborhoods, we wear the right clothes, we build our, our careers, we build our retirement accounts, it goes way further than that. We try to control the people around us. We, tr we try to protect ourselves by managing our expectations, so we protect ourselves from, from disappointed dreams, from broken relationships. And of course, in the end, yeah, maybe we end up with enough money in our retirement accounts. But for most of our lives, in most of the ways that really mattered, it turns out we couldn't protect ourselves at all. Not from the things that really hurt. Not from the things that really get us. And so we turn to our last, final source of protection. We turn to protect ourselves from feeling the pain of life. We turn to, to that final citadel, that, that drug of choice that numbs it all for us. To pornography and sex, to alcohol and weed, to, to, to shopping, to, to food, to 
Might it be said even turning our grandkids or our children into a pain-numbing drug? Or maybe we just try to lose ourselves in the busyness of it all. So that we don't have to feel the pain anymore. And yet in all these ways, we're just digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Friends, this is the dilemma. Our only safety in the midst of all of life's alarms is God. As David knew, it was because God was with him. It was because God went out before him that he was delivered. And yet then he turns around and where can he find safety from God? And the answer, of course, is nowhere. Except in God. Look in verse 12. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This incredibly dangerous Ark of the Lord goes to the house of Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom, three months later, can't believe what's happened to him. He has been blessed. This is the point, of course. God's not safe. There's no question. God is not safe, but there's nowhere better to be. And so David tries again. He wants the blessings of God's presence. But now he understands that God is a holy God. And so he comes with a completely different posture. This time it is a proper royal procession according to God's own rules that he set down back uh, in, in, in earlier in the Old Testament. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You know, they're, they're no longer leading God into their city like a toy on the wagon. 
No, they're, they're carrying him on their shoulders. This is a royal litter. And, and the Levites, in submission to the great king, are carrying him in this place of honor on their shoulders. And, and after they take six steps, they, the sacrifices are offered, acknowledging God's holiness and their sin. And the instruments have changed. Now what's highlighted is, is the trumpet, the, the ram's horn, the, the shofar, announcing, proclaiming that this is not just any God coming in. This is the God of Sinai, the great king who defeated the greatest king on earth, the king of Egypt, to deliver his people from their slavery and bring them into a good land of their own. And then there's David leading the procession. Not as the great king who is bringing his God to town, but as the vassal, the the, the servant, the slave, submitted to his true king. That's the point of David wearing a linen ephod. The, the, the ephod, the linen ephod, was the garment of a priest, and it, and it symbolized that the priest was a slave, a subject to the God they served. Now, we all know that David wasn't in the, the line of Aaron. He, he wasn't a priest in the line of Aaron, but that's not why he's wearing it. He's wearing this ephod as a priest in the line of Melchizedek, the, the heir of Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem. David's making it clear by his dress, by the sacrifices, by the dancing, just who's the slave and who's the king. Who deserves honor and who deserves none? You know, some have tried to use this passage, point to this passage, David dancing before the Lord as justification for us having dance in our, in our corporate worship. I just want to suggest, and I, and I hope as this, you know, as I've laid the passage out, it's, it's clear that that is not at all what this passage is talking about. Not at all. For one thing, this event in, in chapter 6 isn't the weekly public worship, and it's certainly not a performance that some people are watching. No, no it's, it's the expression of the vassal king's subjection to the great king it is an act of humility it's actually an act david acknowledges an act of humiliation a complete abandonment of the pretense of self-dignity as he seeks to exalt one and one only and that is god by abasing himself this is why michael's so disgusted it's not that, that David has, has exposed himself. It's, it's that he's not acted the dignified part of the king. She's showing who she really is. She's Saul's daughter. You know, Saul, the first king. The king like the nations. The king who refused to submit to the true king. And so had the kingdom taken away from him. D- David points this out. He has learned his lesson. He knows who he is He's the vassal, the vice regent, the slave who blesses the people, not in his own name, but in the name of the true king, the Lord Almighty. Friends, you cannot serve your own reputation and God's at the same time. 
It just cannot be done. You will serve one, but you will serve the other. But as Jesus reminds us, if we are willing to lose our life, if we are willing to lose our life for his sake, we will find it. Where is safety from God found? It's found, and it's only found, with God. As we submit to him in humble obedience. But that's not really the end of the story, is it? Because who of us can give that kind of perfect, humble obedience to gain that perfect safety? Who of us can be certain that our wonderful dancing before the Lord, like David, doesn't all of a sudden turn into that moment of Uzzah and we're being struck down? No one can offer that perfect, humble obedience except Jesus. Friends, here's the amazing story of the gospel, a story that answers the central problem of the Bible. The central problem of the Bible is how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? And the answer is only by becoming one of us. Jesus Christ, the the son of David in the flesh, but the son of God by the spirit entered into our history. He lived a perfect, holy life. And then what did he do? He entered into his city. Jerusalem, not as a conquering king, but in humility, completely undignified, just as David did. And he came representing his people, submissive to the great king, his father, Yahweh. And there, friends, he entered into God's presence, bearing not his dignity, but our shame. Bearing not his holiness, but our sin. And he suffered there something far worse than Uzzah did. God broke out against his own son. And the son submitted to that judgment on the cross. And there, Jesus Christ exhausted the wrath of God that burns against his people's sin. And so God raised him from the dead three days later. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And that is how we who are unholy are able to be in the presence of God. Because of what Jesus Christ did, the day has come and is coming that God's people will enjoy God enthroned in their midst in perfect holiness And in perfect safety. Christians, we we are the new Jerusalem. We are the city of God. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Though we are sinners, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we also become saints, holy ones. 
standing securely in the presence of God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And even now, Jesus, that greater son of David, is building and renovating his royal city. Look around you. Do the buildings look a little fallen down? Do some some of the, the ramparts of the city represented right here in this church seem a bit shabby? God is at work. Jesus Christ is building his city. He is refurbishing it. He is rebuilding it. He is making it whole. We are still under construction. But though the work is not done, we know what we're going to be. We are going to be that perfect royal city, that palace, that temple, suitable for God himself to dwell among. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you need to understand who you are. In this story. Earlier, Mako read from Matthew's gospel as Jesus healed the, the blind and the lame in the temple. Don't miss the irony of what Jesus was doing there and do not fail to recognize yourself. In the scriptures, the blind and the lame are not objects of pity. They are objects of curse. They are the proud defenders of the citadel against its rightful king. David said literally that he hated the blind and the lame. David's greater son, Jesus, comes and he welcomes the blind and the lame. He heals us of our sin. He subdues our rebellion and he enables us to lose all of our self-dignity and to dance before him with joy and in submission. Friend, if you're not a believer, if you do not know this great king, let me just urge you that today is the day to come to him. Today is the day to learn how to dance. Today is the day to submit your life to him in repentance and faith. If you're not sure what that looks like, if you're you're not sure what that would mean, I'm going to be standing at the door in the back afterwards. There'll be another pastor at this door here. Come and talk to one of us. Talk to the person you came with. Most importantly, talk to God. Ask him to teach you to dance like David did. As you lay down your pretense and you submit to him as king. Because the day will come, friends, when construction of the city is complete. The day will come when the the last stone has been put in place, when, when the last ornament and jewel has been set, when the last Lame man or woman has been healed. And on that day, the city of God, the the new Jerusalem, which is not a place in the Middle East, but a picture of the people of God on that day, it will be revealed complete and perfect for all time. And on that day, Jesus Christ will enter in royal procession and he will take up his residence amongst us, the people of God, to our everlasting joy. John describes it this way in Revelation 21. As he describes the new Jerusalem that has come down from heaven. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. 
but nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, today is the day to enter the city. Because the day will come when you will not be allowed to enter. Where can you find safety from God? In God. And only in God. Through Jesus Christ. Nothing else can provide the security that you crave. But friends, know that if Jesus Christ is your stronghold today, then you are already part of the heavenly Jerusalem and nothing in this life can threaten the security that you have already gained. And so we live today in light of that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to number our days aright. Help us to see the vanity of our own security. Help us to understand what it means that you are our greatest threat and our only safety. Give us eyes to see this. Give us faith to trust you. And then give us your spirit that we might live out these New Jerusalem, heavenly lives, even now as we wait for the fullness of the city of God to be revealed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.